You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. the 10th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich, and right there is Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. So last week, we took a look at some pro-slavery arguments that were used in the antebellum South to justify their peculiar institution. And as promised, we'll use this episode to take a look at the flip side of that coin, that is, the significance of the abolitionist movement in the North. And just to frame our discussion of the abolitionist movement, We'll lead off with a quote by Frederick Douglass. He said, I expose slavery in this country because to expose it is to kill it. Slavery is one of those monsters of darkness to whom the light of truth is death. That quote could have been the mission statement for abolitionists in the pre-Civil War era. You'll remember we mentioned Frederick Douglass back in the very first episode of the podcast. He was born into slavery in Talbot County, Maryland, probably in the year 1818. Frederick Douglass spent his early years living with his maternal grandmother, only seeing his mother a handful of times before her death when he was around 10 years old. All Douglass knew of his father was that he was a white man. During his childhood years, Douglass was exposed to the miseries and degradations of slavery, witnessing firsthand severe whippings and spending a lot of time cold and hungry. When he was about eight, Frederick Douglass was sent to Baltimore to live with a ship carpenter named Hugh Ald. Ald's wife, Sarah, in defiance of a ban on teaching slaves to read and write, taught Douglass the alphabet. When Hugh Ald put a stop to his wife's lessons, Douglass determined to educate himself, and so he continued to learn from white children and others in the neighborhood. Douglass spent seven relatively comfortable years in Baltimore before being returned to the country where he was eventually sent to work for Edward Covey, who had a reputation as a slave-breaker. Covey's constant, brutal abuse nearly did break the 16-year-old Douglas, but eventually Douglas fought back. That pivotal incident is depicted compellingly in Douglas's first autobiography. After losing that physical confrontation with Douglas, Covey never beat him again. Douglas tried to escape from slavery twice before he succeeded. In September 1838, while he was working in a Baltimore shipyard, Douglas was assisted in his final attempt by Anna Murray, a free black woman with whom he'd fallen in love. On September 3rd, by train and steamboat, Douglas made his way to the safe house of abolitionist David Ruggles in New York City in less than 24 hours. Once he had arrived, Douglas Douglas sent for Anna Murray to meet him. She did, and they married on September 15, 1838, and then settled in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which had a flourishing free black community. At New Bedford, Douglas joined a black church and regularly attended abolitionist meetings. Frederick Douglass found abolitionists to be a small but vocal minority in the North. And before we go any farther, we should probably stress that, despite what Southerners believed, abolitionists were in fact ever only a small minority in the North. Remember we said in the last episode that, by today's standards, most people of the North were what we would consider racist. 
and even those in the North who had anti-slavery sentiments, such as Abraham Lincoln, they still readily acknowledged that slavery had a constitutional right to exist in the South. They thought the best the North could do was to quarantine slavery in its existing areas by preventing its spread into the new Western territories. So the point is that abolitionists were a small but vocal minority and were really quite radical in their desire to abolish slavery entirely, immediately. Right. Calling for immediate emancipation set abolitionists apart from those with more moderate anti-slavery sentiments. So who were these abolitionists? Well, they were both men and women. Many of them were free blacks, or manumitted slaves, or slaves like Frederick Douglass who had escaped to freedom. And then, of course, many whites of both sexes also took part in the abolitionist crusade against slavery. As early as 1688, at a meeting in Germantown near Philadelphia, Quakers were voicing opposition to slavery. Throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, Quakers waged an uncompromising campaign against slavery, which they saw as a moral abomination. Many Quaker abolitionists, such as Levi Coffin, Isaac Hopper, and Thomas Garrett, served as conductors on the Underground Railroad. Some of the first American women to give public speeches were Quakers who spoke out against slavery. Angelina and Sarah Grimke were two sisters who converted from the Episcopalian Church after leaving their slave-holding family in South Carolina. Angelina, who later married the abolitionist Reverend Theodore D. Weld, urged Christian women of the South to honor God's law by freeing their slaves. Eighteenth-century abolitionism gained momentum during the Revolutionary War period and reached its peak between 1784 and 1804 when slavery was abolished in the northern states and many slaves were manumitted in the South. However, by 1810, this early wave of abolitionism had died out, largely due to the new economic opportunities in the South brought about by the cotton boom. Then an evangelical Protestant revival known as the Second Great Awakening swept across America in the 1820s. Baptist and Methodist preachers led the movement, and in the North their sermons railing against the evils of society influenced a number of future abolitionist leaders, including William Lloyd Garrison and also Arthur and William Tappan, who were brothers and wealthy merchants and would be two major financial supporters of the anti-slavery crusade. Yankee preachers declared that the most heinous social sin was slavery. They said that all people, black and white, were equals in God's sight, and so for one of God's children to enslave another was a violation of the higher law. Sadly, eventually the controversy over slavery divided mainline denominations along sectional lines. The Methodist, Baptist, and Presbyterians all split into northern and southern branches in the years before the Civil War. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We mentioned William Lloyd Garrison a moment ago, and so just a bit of background about him. In 1818, when Garrison was 13 years old, he was apprenticed to the editor of a newspaper in Newburyport, Massachusetts. And from that experience, and then working other newspaper jobs, Garrison gained the skills to run his own newspaper. In 1828, he moved to Boston, and through his newspaper work, the abolitionist movement caught his attention. For a while, Garrison associated himself with the work of the American Colonization Society. Founded in Washington, D.C. in 1817, the Society raised funds to send free blacks to Africa and establish settlements there. The idea behind the organization was that blacks and whites were simply so different that they could never live together in social equality, so it was best to resettle blacks outside the continental United States. In 1821, the American Colonization Society purchased land in West Africa and founded Liberia. The first group of free blacks settled there in 1822. Liberia's capital, Monrovia, was named after President James Monroe, who was in office at the time. The colony became the Independent Republic of Liberia in 1847, and by 1860, over 10,000 free American blacks had immigrated there. Many slave owners actually favored colonization, believing it was a convenient way to lessen the influence of free blacks in the United States. Most blacks, on the other hand, were opposed to colonization. Most preferred to stay in the country where they were born. We'll return to the topic of colonization later on in the podcast, but for now we'll just point out that in the years before the war, Garrison, like most abolitionists, ended up criticizing the scheme and distancing himself from it. He believed African Americans deserved an equal opportunity to share in the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. After working on an anti-slavery newspaper, Garrison started his own abolitionist paper in early 1831, calling it The Liberator. In the very first edition of The Liberator, Garrison declared, I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. On this subject, I do not wish to think or speak or write with moderation. No, no. Tell a man whose house is on fire to give a moderate alarm. Tell him to moderately rescue his wife from the hand of the ravisher. Tell the mother to gradually extricate her babe from the fire into which it has fallen. But urge me not to use moderation in a cause like the present. I am in earnest, and I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard. Well, Garrison soon gained a reputation for being the most radical of abolitionists. For example, in his speeches and through the Liberator, Garrison attacked both organized religion and the U.S. Constitution, saying that both encouraged slavery. And, in an interesting twist, he even suggested that northern states should secede from the Union and form a new nation free from the stain of slavery. In 1832, Garrison helped organize the New England Anti-Slavery Society. And then the next year, in Philadelphia, in 1833, along with the Tappan Brothers and 60 other delegates, Garrison helped found the American Anti-Slavery Society. 
These were the first organizations dedicated to promoting immediate emancipation. The American Anti-Slavery Society's publication, The Emancipator, joined a remarkable outpouring of anti-slavery pamphlets and books and broadsides aimed at exposing the evils of slavery. The Society also flooded Congress with petitions demanding immediate emancipation. These activities provoked widespread negative responses from Northerners and Southerners. To many Northerners, the abolitionist radical calls for an immediate end to slavery raised fears that free blacks would come north and take jobs away from whites. So as early as 1833, hostile mobs in the north were confronting abolitionists. And the abolitionist campaign to distribute anti-slavery literature met with resistance in the south. In July 1835, a mob in Charleston, South Carolina, broke into the post office seized stacks of anti-slavery literature, and publicly set them ablaze. And then in 1836, as a constant stream of anti-slavery petitions flooded into Congress, Southern representatives pressured their Northern colleagues into instituting a gag rule on such appeals. And this gag rule, an extraordinary measure of legislative censorship, remained in effect until 1844, when it was finally repealed. Although the distribution of literature and legislative pressure were important elements of the abolitionist strategy to expose the evils of slavery, some decided to take a more active role in the struggle against slavery. Beginning in the 1830s, a loose network of white abolitionists and free blacks created a system to smuggle slaves out of the South and into the free states of the North and to Canada. This was the famous Underground Railroad. The conductors, as those who operated the system were called, transferred the fugitives gradually northward from one safe location to another. In 1842, Southern opposition to the Underground Railroad intensified when the Supreme Court ruled in Prigg versus Pennsylvania that states were not required to enforce the old Fugitive Slave Law of 1793, which provided for the return of slaves who escaped to free states. And so as part of the Compromise of 1850, Southerners successfully demanded a more stringent enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Law. Probably the most famous conductor of the Underground Railroad was an African-American woman who escaped from slavery named Harriet Tubman. Born into slavery in Maryland around 1820, the violence she suffered early in life caused permanent physical injuries. She carried scars on her back from the lash, and then she suffered severe headaches and occasional seizures for the rest of her life after a white overseer threw a two-pound weight at Tubman in anger, striking her in the head. Harriet Tubman escaped to Philadelphia in 1849, and as she crossed over into the free state of Pennsylvania, she later recalled, When I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. But rather than remaining in safety in the north, Tubman made it her mission to rescue her family and others still living in slavery. She earned the nickname Moses, as at great personal risk, she returned south many times to guide slaves to freedom along the Underground Railroad. Over time, she was able to guide her parents, several siblings, and about 60 others to freedom. One person who declined to make the journey with her was Harriet's husband, John, who preferred to stay in Maryland with his new wife. 
Harriet Tubman remained active through the Civil War, serving the Union Army as a cook and nurse and even as a scout and spy, helping to liberate more than 700 slaves in South Carolina. The first of Harriet Tubman's many return trips to the South had been in 1850, after she received word that her niece, Kessia, was going to be sold along with her two children. Kessia's husband was a free black man named John Bowley. John was able to make the winning bid for his wife at a slave auction in Baltimore, and then Harriet helped the entire family make the journey to Philadelphia. You know, as a husband, I can't even imagine what it would be like having to try to keep my family together by bidding for my wife and children at a slave auction, knowing that if someone outbid me, I would quite literally lose my family. But, you know, that actually brings up one of the most powerful moral arguments that abolitionists used against slavery, and that was how slavery tragically split up families. There's a very moving example of this family separation that we'd like to share with you. It's a remarkable letter written in Charlottesville, Virginia in 1852 by a woman named Maria Perkins. She's writing to her husband Richard about the sale of their son, Albert. Richard and Maria were already owned by different masters, but in this letter, as she grieves the dissolution of her household, both people and possessions, she desperately attempts to at least save her marriage by asking her husband to convince his owner to buy her. Charlottesville, October 8, 1852 Dear Husband, I write to let you know of my distress. My master has sold Albert to a trader on Monday, court day, and myself and other child is for sale also. And I want you to let me hear from you very soon, before next court if you can. I don't know when. I don't want you to wait till Christmas. I want you to tell Dr. Hamilton and your master if either will buy me, they can attend to it now, and then I can go afterwards. I don't want a traitor to get me. They asked me if I had any person to buy me, and I told them no. They took me to the courthouse, too. They never put me up. A man by the name of Brady bought Albert and is gone. I don't know where. They say he lives in Scottsville. My things is in several places. Some is in Staunton, and if I should be sold, I don't know what will become of them. I don't expect to meet with the luck to get that way till I am quite heart-sick. Nothing more. I am and ever will be your kind wife, Maria Perkins. Unfortunately, we don't know what happened to Maria Perkins. Most slaves, of course, couldn't read or write, so it's incredible that the letter itself survived to be found by a historian from Yale who came across it and published it in 1929 in his book, Life and Labor in the Old South. Sadly, the tragic separation of slave families such as happened in this instance, was not at all an uncommon occurrence in the South. We'll talk more about the Underground Railroad and the famous book Uncle Tom's Cabin as we look at the resistance in the North to the new fugitive slave law that was part of the Compromise of 1850. And Frederick Douglass will also be heard from again during the course of the podcast. But really, here's the takeaway from this episode's discussion. 
We wanted to show that the abolitionist mission statement truly could have been that quote. I expose slavery in this country, because to expose it is to kill it. Slavery is one of those monsters of darkness, to whom the light of truth is death. And so while abolitionists were never more than a small minority in the North, they were undeniably a very vocal and active minority with a powerful message. And so by measures such as their newspapers and literature and petitions to Congress and the efforts of the Underground Railroad and through the personal testimonies of free blacks such as Douglas and Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth, the abolitionist repeated agitation of the slavery issue was a significant contribution to the sectional unraveling that led up to the Civil War. In the years leading up to the war, Southerners became more and more convinced that abolitionists were much more than a fringe element of Northern society, and therefore abolitionists and their message constituted a clear and present danger to the South's social and economic institutions. In fact, by 1860, after John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, and then with the election of the Republican candidate Abraham Lincoln to the presidency, it's no stretch to say that many Southerners were well and truly convinced that there was a great abolitionist conspiracy operating in the North with one goal in mind, immediate emancipation. And from the South's point of view, immediate emancipation would lead to certain economic ruin, social chaos, and violent racial war. And so even before Lincoln took office, the cotton states of the Deep South started to secede from the Union. But that's getting quite a bit ahead of where we actually are in our story. So for right now, we'll hit the pause button and keep all of that on hold. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Radical and the Republican, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and the Triumph of Anti-Slavery Politics by James Oakes. About this book, Publishers Weekly said, The perennial tension between principle and pragmatism in politics frames this engaging account of two Civil War-era icons. Oakes charts the course by which Douglass and Lincoln initially far apart on the anti-slavery spectrum, gravitated toward each other. Lincoln began as a moderate who advocated banning slavery in the territories while tolerating it in the South, rejected social equality for blacks, and wanted to send freemen overseas. And he wound up abolishing slavery outright and increasingly supporting black voting rights. Conversely, the abolitionist firebrand Douglas moved from an impatient, self-marginalizing moral rectitude to a recognition of compromise, coalition-building, and incremental goals as necessary steps forward in a democracy. Douglas's views on race were essentially modern. The book is really a study through his eyes of the more complex figure of Lincoln. So that's The Radical and the Republican by James Oakes. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Also at the website, you can find links to the podcast's various social network manifestations on Facebook and Twitter. And if you listen to the show on iTunes, please consider taking a minute to write a five-star review for us and also to subscribe to the podcast. 
If you do subscribe to the podcast, the newest episode will handily download as soon as it's available. And both of those things will help other people find the podcast on iTunes. Correct. So, as we wrap things up, we'll remind you that the music we use to start and finish each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used by permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.